Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Making Sense of Islam podcast. A few housekeeping points before we begin. Every episode is accompanied by episode notes that highlight everything I've referenced. So people, verses, hadith, etc. They are all in the episode notes, which you can find at makingsenseofislam.com. Most of the episodes are short form, so the notes are few. But when you listen to longer form episodes, the notes are meant to be a resource and an aid. Number two, I would really appreciate it if you could rate the podcast on whatever platform you use and leave a comment, hopefully positive. And number three, every Friday I send out a short email called Coexist Ruminations that shares what I'm working on and reading in my four focus areas. If you'd like to receive these, please sign up by going to makingsenseofislam.com forward slash Friday. That's it for now. Enjoy the show. If you have ever spent time studying any of the Islamic sciences, one of the patterns that becomes clear is the attention scholars in the past gave to documenting principles, axioms, rules, aphorisms, etc. In almost every discipline, you will find these cataloged, all with the aim of making the study of that particular discipline easy. So, rather than always having to start with a minutia and then making sense of it, students typically learn these principles, which provide important frameworks to make sense of it all. Now, while these principles are usually for students and experts of these fields, I believe that many Muslims seeking to make sense of Islam require their own set of first principles, through which they can approach Islam as a religion and discipline of study, and also draw conclusions that are both at one with the fundamentals of the faith, and also compatible with our current condition. In this series, and at this point I'm not exactly sure how long it's going to be, but I will say at least 10 episodes, I want to highlight some of these first principles that help us create a mental framework through which we can make sense of Islam today. Enjoy. So if you've been following this series, one of the things we've discussed is that the Sharia changes. The Sharia is not something that's stagnant, it's something that's dynamic. And the rulings of the Sharia, the ahkam of the Sharia, they change. They change with time, they change with place, they change with circumstance, uh, they change with people. We also talked about maqasid al-Sharia, the, the meta goals of the Sharia, and how this could impact how we interpret the Sharia, etc. And this leads to another principle, a meta principle that we should keep in mind, which is that all of our rulings in the Sharia can be thought of as rulings that are symbols. That they are in a way in themselves archetypes. And what is what is sought after is not necessarily the specific ruling that we find in a book that's been written several hundred years ago, but what we're after is the spirit behind those rulings, what those rulings symbolize, and how we implement them today in a way that makes sense. As, as I have mentioned in previous discussions uh, in the series of principles. For example, we know from one of the stories uh, from the seerah of the Prophet, peace be upon him, as there was a person that was injured in battle and he had sort of a, a gash in his head. And he, he was in, in a state of janaba, of uh, major ritual impurity, as we translate janaba. 
and he needed to perform ghusl to be able to uh, pray and you know carry on his 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 uh, devotional affairs so he asked some of the companions do i have to make ghusl with water even though i have like this big you know injury and one of the companions said yes or or a group said yes you have to so he made ghusl and subsequently his uh, his his injury was infected and he died so when the prophet sallallahu heard this he said qataluhu qatalahumullah they killed him may allah kill them which is you know a very horrible thing to hear you know the, the prophet sallallahu uh, was typically not like that but when when he heard this egregious crime you know incorrect application of the sharia and incorrect fatwa the language that we would use today, that led to this poor man's death, the Prophet was, was upset and highlighted this in, this in this hadith. Now, those people at the time that, that told that man, no, he had to take a bath, they're stuck with this concept, if you have major ritual impurity, if you have janaba, you have to make ghusl, and you can only do ghusl with water. They're stuck on that. Like many Muslims today are stuck on, you know, what was written two, three, four, five hundred years ago. And stuck, it has to be that way. But that's not what the Sharia meant. That's the normal case. The normal case, if when one of us uh, has a situation that requires us to take the bath, we take the bath with water. But you know, if you have a gash in your head, or you know, or you're wearing a cast, or you injured yourself, or something like that, not only will you not take the bath, you know, you would make tayammum. Uh, you could pray sitting down, you can pray with your eyes, you know, you can pray with, with you know, if, if the situation were such that you couldn't move, you know, we know that we have these dispensations. So therefore, the symbol of the rulings of Tahara, for example, in this case, is a symbol of obedience, is a symbol of approaching Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when we are in a state of purity. You know, when Moses is, is going to meet the divine uh, when he receives the revelation, uh, the Quran says that Allah Taala says, alayk, you know, take off your sandals. Why? Because you are now going to enter this holy space. Well, Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala can hear us anywhere, anywhere we can pray anywhere. Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala can hear us. But this, this, this is a symbol, a reminder, a metaphor that when you're going to stand and pray or stand and 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 turn to Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, you need to do so in a state of purity. And the Prophet taught us how to do that in our Sharia, that we wash a certain way, etc. That's the symbol behind it. That's the, the, the spirit behind the law. But in this particular story, the man couldn't have performed ghusl the normal way. So keep this in mind throughout the discussion. So I want to give us a few stories uh, from our history of how we maybe messed up on this issue to drive this principle principle home. We know from our own history in the subcontinent that there was a Muslim emperor, Jalal Akbar, who at one point in time had this idea that he wanted to create a civic religion, right? A deen al-ilahi. And he wanted to find a way to uh, melt the differences between Muslims and Hindus. So he said to the Hindus, you need to, all you need to do is just honor, honor the Prophet honor and acknowledge Prophet Muhammad And you know, just do the things that we do, but you can still be called, you know, Hindus. 
And the Muslims, you just call yourself Hindus and you keep doing what you're doing, but just don't eat meat. Because Hindus, uh, typically, t- even t- t- till today, practicing Hindus, they, they're all vegetarian. It's you know, part of the, for, for religious reasons. So in his, um, in his thinking process, let us say, he thought that he could melt the differences between Muslims and Hindu, and now we'll have like a new civic religion, we'll have one religion, Deen al-Ilahi, you know, the, 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 the religion of God, and we will melt the differences between Muslims and Hindus. Until one of the imams, one of the great imams of Islam, Imam Sirhindi, rahimahullah, you know, he said this statement, he said that eating the meat of the cow is from the greatest symbols of Islam. Min sha'air islam Like we say that hajj is from the sha'air of Islam. Hajj is from the major signs of Islam. He said eating meat is... Not only is it permissible, it is almost compulsory. It is the major sign of being a Muslim. Now, of course, when you read that now in the context in which we're in, eating meat is not a fard, it's not obligatory. I know as Muslims we sometimes think it is, but it's not, it's not obligatory. As a matter of fact, there are some hadith that talk about the danger of eating meat. For example, in Al-Hakim in his Mustadrak, uh, he narrates that the Prophet ﷺ said, Alaykum bi alban al-Baqar. You know, drink the uh, milk of the cow. So it is a medicine. And the fat, because it is a healing. But do not eat the meat of the cow. Because its meat is a sickness. So I could take this hadith, for example, and I can make an argument that, that we should stay away from eating meat for health reasons. Okay? And maybe today we, we need this hadith more. But why would, did Imam al-Sirhindi rahimahullah, why did he say that eating meat is this, it's the greatest symbol of Islam? Because he understood that this project of the Sultan was going to destroy Islam. Because if, if everyone that's Muslim now follows this crazy plan and says, okay, we're Hindu, but we're really Muslim, and the only thing that makes us different is we'll stop eating meat, Okay, maybe we can kind of get it. But what's going to happen to our kids and then our grandkids? They're going to forget the whole thing. And then they're going to think, oh, we're, we're Hindu. And then the Hindus will be like, if you're Hindu, why don't you come and do the, to the Hindu temple? And why don't you do the Hindu rituals? And why don't you do this? Why don't, and then Islam will be lost. And actually, he was Imam Sir Hindi. He obviously, for obvious reasons, he didn't get along well with the Sultan. And the relationship wasn't very well. But he took this major stand. And he understood... This principle that we're talking about now, that these rulings are symbols. And in this case, the symbol that was needed, he said, no, you, we have to eat meat. Not we have to eat meat because I want to eat meat, because of the greater implications that are involved in what the Sultan was saying in that plan. And what's interesting is throughout Islamic history, Islam has never really melted into another culture. It's usually the other way around. Like the Mongols. Like when the Mongol invasion descended upon the heartland of the Muslim world, there was really one or two generations, and the Mongols themselves, they became Muslim. And actually the last descendant of Genghis Khan was um, an Afghani emir, I believe, that died in like the 1940s. 1940s, can you imagine? He was a direct descendant of Genghis Khan, but he was Muslim. 
the name escapes me right now. Anyway, he was a direct descendant of Genghis Khan, meaning that you see that, that it, usually the other cultures and other religions and other way, usually they would melt in Islam, not the other way around. So Imam al-Sirhindi, the point of the story is he understood that our rulings are symbols. And sometimes the symbol has to carry a more important meaning than other things. Another story or another incident from our history, in the uh, late 19th century, there was a fatwa that came to the Mufti of Egypt from Transvaal, which is now in, in South Africa, from South Africa. And the, the question had many, uh, many sub-questions, but there was one in particular that interests us, which was asking, what is the ruling of wearing a hat, a Western hat, you know, that has like a brim, uh, meaning for men. I, I, well, I guess women also could wear hats. So what's the ruling of wearing a hat that has a brim? Like a fedora or, you know, they all have different names. Now, as a, as a Muslim listening to this in, you know, 2018, 2019, like what, I mean, a hat is a hat. What's the big deal? Uh, we wear hats, all different kinds of hats. It's not a big deal. But at that time, it was a totally different meaning because this was a time in which there was a colonial, you know, an occupation of a colonial force. And at that time, dressing like that would mean dressing like the colonizers. Whereas now, it doesn't mean anything. It's just a fashion statement. But at that time, the idea that you would take off your quote-unquote Islamic garb and wear Western garb was a totally different meaning than what it means today. So they would say, no, in that case, it's haram. It's haram to wear a hat. I mean, if you, if you read that now, you would think, oh, these Muslims are backward. But you have to understand where they're coming from. Just like Imam Sirhindi, he understood that this is a symbol. The symbol is, well, why are you going to dress like the occupier? You should be in a state of resistance or a state of holding to your culture, to your beliefs, not losing your beliefs. And at this colonial period, it was all, in Egypt especially, it was an expression um, if somebody, like, if a man wore, um, you know, a suit or what, what, what would be considered what we would call today a suit, they would say uh, he committed kufr and he started wearing socks. It was like a statement. Well, does wearing socks make you a kafir? No, but the idea was if you wear, you know, thin socks, uh, you're going to wear these Western shoes, you're not wearing the sandals that the Arabs wore at that time. So it was like a symbol. It was a symbol that you have sort of given in. Now, it doesn't matter. Now everyone wears the same thing everywhere, anywhere, and uh, there's no such thing as Muslim garb necessarily, and, and things like that. But at that time, it was a symbol. It was the symbol that mattered. So the fatwa was, no, in this case it's haram. But I can't take that fatwa now and say, oh, it's haram to wear a hat that has a brim. Or in the case of, of meat, in the previous example, I can't come and say, we have to eat meat. No, that's not the case. At that time, it was, it was a different circumstance. And then the, the third story slash example I have, there's a, um, a famous historian of Egypt, Al-Makrizi, who wrote a book called Al-Khitat, in which he sort of documented, you know, medieval scholar that documented the history 
of Egypt up, up until his time. And something interesting happened at his time in which somebody came uh, from the Caucasus. And this person said that our ruler, and don't, I don't have at this point more information about where, and it was at Russia or the Caucasus or who the ruler was, but in any case, was interested in learning about other religions, other faiths. So I have been sent here to learn about Islam. You know, we've learned about Hinduism, we've learned about Buddhism, of course we know about Christianity and Judaism, but we want to learn about Islam. So they start talking, and the man or this ambassador, he was very impressed. He's like, oh, you have all these, you know, you believe in all of the previous religions. Yeah, you believe in all of the prophets. Uh, he hadn't encountered that before, because everyone is sort of our prophet, you know, or bust. And then he meets the Muslims, and well, we believe in all these people, we love all these people, and you know, Muslims were, were good people, were happy people. So the man was impressed. Uh, but then there, there came a point in the conversation where he stumbled on this issue of alcohol. And he's like, well, you know, alcohol for us is a necessity because it's so cold and, you know, we have to have our vodka and that's what keeps us warm and that's like a fard for us, you know, to use your language. That's a fard, we have to, to drink. So the sheikh said, oh, well, you can't be Muslim. You know, so the man was upset and he left. So, who knows? <laughs> all, of, all of the Caucasus, if this story is, is as accurate as, we, as, as it came to us, all of the Caucasus, you know, all of Russia could have become Muslim. If, you, if this sheikh just said, okay, you know, okay, it's haram, but you know, be Muslim, and you know, hopefully in a generation or two, you know, we'll, maybe we'll give you some spicy chai or something like that to warm you up in, in the, in the wintertime. Because in the fiqh, we have an, there is a concept of accepting someone's Islam with a deficient condition. If somebody said, I wanted to come and accept Islam, but I don't want to pray, that wouldn't work. Because that happened at the time of the Prophet Sassam, and the Prophet Sassam said, well, there's no good in a religion if there's no prayer or rukuah in it. That's the, the essence of our religion is that we stand and we pray and mechanically. But if somebody comes and says, you know, I want to be Muslim, but I can't stop drinking, you know, and, the, and the person is middle-aged, and you know, like in this story, for example, we'll say, okay, it's still haram, you know, but we'll slowly teach you that it's, that it's not permissible. You can't expect people, you know, like when somebody becomes Muslim, we expect them to pray. But when somebody becomes Muslim and they're older, we understand when Ramadan comes, you know, that it might take them a couple years to, I, mean, I met a guy who converted for like almost a decade, or, or maybe that's an exaggeration, a few years, and, and was fasting, but was drinking water while he was fasting. And then somebody said, but you know, you can't have water either. He said, really? So these things take, we, we laugh, but, but he takes time. How, how would he know? He doesn't know. That, that I, no drinking, not even water? I mean, I'm not eating. I'm not drinking anything. No coffee, no tea, no soda, no food, no lunch, no breakfast. I mean, I just I need some water. So these things, sometimes they take time. That's why the fuqaha, there's a section in fiqh called accepting Islam with a deficient condition. So had the sheikh, whoever he is, may Allah forgive him, <laughs> had the sheikh known this or was cognizant of it, he would have understood that he doesn't have to hold to every minutia of the law, but the symbol behind it bringing a whole community inside Islam far outweighs the deficient clause in that transaction because at the end of the day it's a form of a, of a transaction so these three stories uh, that I discussed highlight this principle that all of our rulings in the sharia because they change with so many conditions and maqasid and 
maslaha of people, etc. You know, the, the greater good of people. We need to understand that they're symbolic. I'm not saying that we whitewash the sharia and just do what we want. No, I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying that when we come to apply our Islam, when we come to apply our sharia in, in, in the here and the now, we have to understand these outer conditions that surround how we're applying them. And make sure that we don't lose the symbol, the metaphor, the spirit behind the individual laws. As, as these three examples show from different, from different time periods. Wallahu a'lam. <laughs>